1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast Asia centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution For policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. In recent years, there's been an upsurge in studies asking questions about and in borderlands. The topic is certainly not new to scholars of mainland Southeast Asia, but it's clear from a book out now with the University of Washington Press that plenty of work remains to be done on the parallel processes of border and state formation in the region. That book is Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China-Vietnam Borderlands, and its author, Bradley Camp Davis, is an assistant professor of history at the Eastern Connecticut State University. He's our guest today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where he's talking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a member at the Institute for Advanced Study Princeton and host of the channel. Bradley, thanks so much for coming on to talk about Imperial Bandits. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Set the scene for us. Where are these borderlands and with what period is the book concerned?
0: Mostly the book's concerned with the land border between China and Vietnam, roughly from the area around the Black River Basin across the Red River to what's known as the the clear river which is east of the red river in northern vietnam flowing into the southern chinese province of guangxi so i guess from the chinese perspective we're looking at the provinces of yunnan and guangxi and then the western edge of Guangdong a little bit and from the perspective of vietnam the northwest region which is historically and ethnically speaking much more part of the thai world than the vietnam world and then the Vietnamese provinces of Cao Bang Lang Son and Cao Bang Lang Son and uh, Twin Guang over to the west. So those are the specific geographic markers of the border area that the book is concerned with. The period, The uh, this is kind of like this period for, I think, for the history of Southeast Asia, and particularly for Vietnam, which is usually seen as the prelude to European colonial rule. I'm dealing mostly with the period just after the collapse of the Taiping Rebellion in southern China and before, during, and after the initial formation of French colonial rule in Vietnam.
1: We already get the impression of the great cultural and linguistic diversity of the region that you're doing the work on. The book itself tells this story of diversity through bandits, their official allies, and the communities that they dominated through the use of violence in the China-Vietnam borderlands. Can you sketch out for us the key protagonists?
0: Oh, sure. Well, the, the two, I guess, principal groups that form the bulk of the narrative are the uh, the Black Flag Army and the Yellow Flag Army. And they have a common point of origin in something called the Kingdom of Yanling, which was a bad copy of the Taiping Rebellion. The Kingdom of Yenling were organized by a group of people who were making money by trading illicit opium in southern China. And in about the 1850s or so, with the Qing Empire preoccupied with the Taiping Rebellion, a group of people in southern China took advantage of the situation to declare their own independent kingdom, which basically gave them the ability to tax agriculture, to move uh, goods to and fro. And out of this kingdom of Yenling, there came two groups, the the yellow flags and the black flags, who sort of emerged. 1862, when the kingdom of Yenling more or less collapsed Out of that collapse came the yellow and the black flags. The black flags are probably the most famous of the two because they would later become uh, allies of the Vietnamese imperial state working as uh, as officials to put down other uprisings against uh, imperial authority into the 1880s actually participating in the war against French colonial invasion and becoming heroes, sort of uh, uh, responsible for the deaths of two high-ranking French officers. And then even into the early 20th century, the Black Flags were still inspiring the hope of early anti-colonial activists who would seek out members of the Black Flags, particularly their leader, Liu Yongfu, who had, after the successful French invasion of Vietnam, retired to southern China after spending some time in Taiwan, where he attempted to fight against the uh, Japanese Imperial Army in 1895. And people would come and seek out the wisdom of Liu Yongfu. So he's sort of associated with the uh, the heroic struggle against foreign aggression. And also for for historians in China, and even Chinese cinema, the Black Flags have been this sort of heroic army struggling against European Imperialism. Uh, the yellow flags don't fare nearly as well in the historiography, mostly because they tend to be connected with French colonial rule. Whereas the black flags were working with Vietnamese authorities prior to the French colonial period and then fighting the French colonial conquest. The yellow flags were, in many cases, cooperating with French gun merchants. Many yellow flag soldiers served as security for some of the early French consular offices in the 1870s. Consequently, they're, they're kind of folded into the fabric of French colonial rule very early on, which isn't to say that they're completely obedient to what French the French colonial project is trying to do, and they're cases where the yellow flags sort of have their own ideas and are able to turn the institutions of colonial rule to their own ends. There are some minor groups that are discussed as well. There's a rebellion of mostly Hmong and Yao speakers known as the White Flag Rebellion, which is one of the events that kind of draws the Black Flags into the story of the uh, China-Vietnam borderlands. And then there are also groups affiliated that actually share connections between the Black Flags and anti-colonial activists in the late 19th century calling these groups or organizations uh, bandits or not bandits or bandits or rebels or the anti-colonial rebels, this is a very slippery conceptual uh, distinction, which I think is, is useful and hopefully readers will understand it's it's difficult to make a historical judgment about who's a bandit and who's not in this particular situation.
1: And the reason you refer to them as imperial bandits is because of the alliances and relationships that they had with empires? The,
0: the term imperial bandits, it, there's there's a couple of different things going on. Firstly, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, what I was putting the narrative together and putting the book together, I realized that uh, whether it's the French colonial project or the Vietnamese imperial project or the Qing empire, I'm talking about three political projects that uh, I, you could think of as empires. So they're bandits in the sense that they're deriving authority in some way from outside of formal governance or formal official channels, but they're linking themselves to these empires as a way to sustain themselves or their followers or create a support base. But it's imperial also in the sense that I'm dealing partially with the period before French colonial rule and partially after. So imperial Vietnam, meaning the period of you know, the Vietnamese imperial dynasty before France. This actually becomes kind of an interesting linguistic problem. I gave a book talk in Vietnamese about two months ago in Hanoi, and we had to translate the title of the book into Vietnamese. And the word imperial calls to mind imperialism which calls to mind Lenin, which calls to mind the struggles of post-World War II Vietnam. So we had to actually call them feudal bandits.
1: Well, now you've mentioned your lecture in Vietnamese. Let me ask you about your use of different sources from different languages. What did you draw upon to write the book, and how did you get the material, and how did you interpret it?
0: It's a bit of an embarrassment of riches for this particular period of of Vietnamese history, Not, not to mention the sources and related to Chinese history that I drew on, there's quite a lot of text. So I think historians working on the 19th century in, in, in Vietnam really have a lot of materials they can work with just in terms of text. Two main bodies of archival material that I worked with were um, the French colonial materials, which some of them are housed in Hanoi, and some of them are housed in Aix-en-Provence in France. And I also was able to do this project right after the archives of the imperial wind dynasty were opened to uh, outside researchers to foreign researchers and uh, there were just a few of us who were working on these materials in 2004 2005 2006 and uh, i was li- sort of right place right time and when i was able to read what in Vietnamese are known as Choban or the uh, administrative rescripts or the, the records of the court and the ministries related to local administration. Most of those materials, the Vietnamese imperial records, are mostly in what you could call classical Chinese, although it's a very particular form of classical Chinese. It's sort of administrative language. I was also able to use Qing administrative records, uh, records in, in Beijing, but also records from some provincial collections. Uh, the collection in Yunnan and Kunming was particularly useful. And that's just on the on the textual side of things. In addition to the French records and the Chinese and Vietnamese records, I also used ethnographic work. I was really inspired by the work by uh, several Vietnamese historians and also historians from other fields using oral traditions to find uh, ways of creating conversations with archival material and really to kind of inform my reading of Textual sources that were written and housed in buildings, taking information from stories that people tell one another at the village level. Most of that field work was conducted in Vietnamese, with some discussions in Yao and Thai languages.
1: And to set of interest, what languages would the bandits and their associates themselves have been speaking?
0: Oh, that's a great question. We know with some reliability that the head of the black flags, Leo Fu, uh, Liu Yong Phu, Lu Vinh Phu in Vietnamese, that he was a, a speaker of Hakka or uh, or keja, and he spoke Hakka at home. I actually have a, an interview with his oldest living relative in the book. Who is a retired chemistry teacher in southern China? And he, re- he recalls his elderly grandfather speaking Hakka at home. Most likely, like most people in this border area, or even if you spend any time there, you're going to pick up other languages. And just the work for this book was not something you could do in just one language or two languages. The common language of the border zone. During this period and really into the 20th century is actually Yunnanese, which is a, a, a form of spoken Chinese. It's not quite standard, what we would call Mandarin Chinese, but it's the common spoken language around Yunnan province. And people involved in the tea trade, people involved in the, the caravan trade, Andrew Forbes has written the stuff on the Qinhua uh, trade from the Thai studies perspective they would have been able to communicate in Yunnanese. Even place names in Vietnam, like the province of Lao Cai, these aren't Vietnamese terms, these are Yunnanese terms that are sort of borrowed into Vietnamese. There's some evidence that some of the yellow flags were actually ethnic. Speak- there were speakers of Thai Kadai languages. I should s- hesitate to say the word ethnic because um, it's very difficult to verify that from the sources that we have, but we do know that many of their names seem to be similar to names of Nung and Thai and Zay communities in, in that part of Vietnam today. So there's some suggestion that they may have spoken some southern or some northern Thai language, as well as Yunnanese.
1: Let's circle back to the substantive contribution of the book, and I'll ask the, the big question. What's your core argument?
0: The core argument is that once these groups that I'm calling imperial bandits, come into the uh, orbit of the Vietnamese state or the Vietnamese imperial state, that they begin to uh, link into what the Vietnamese imperial state and to some extent what the Chinese empire is doing also they link into these political projects the black flags and the yellow flags are competing over territory and resources control over the opium trade control over mineral exploitation but the black flags are able to carve out a foothold in the borderlands in a way that harmonizes with the long-term political ambitions of the vietnamese empire so the kind of violent things that these groups are doing which include raiding villages, kidnapping, maiming, assault, decapitation. These are actually serving the ends of the Vietnamese imperial control over territory and subjects, which ties back to a much older political discourse in Vietnamese history that goes back to the 1830s. It's not just a question of these bandits that are actually serving imperial officials. I also contend in the book, and I hope I've been able to make this clear that just because bandits submit to political authority, whether it's the Vietnamese Empire or the Chinese Empire or French colonial state, they maintain alternate agendas that don't always comport with what the uh, the formal political authority has in mind. They become very difficult to control, I guess might be one way. To put it, but these groups, even when they submit to formal political authority, whether it's French or Chinese or Vietnamese, it doesn't mean that they become locked in to one particular political role. They're, they're very malleable, and the way that I demonstrate this, or really, I guess what what really leapt out at me as I was writing the book, was how easily early anti-colonial movements in Vietnam just fit right in to the networks of violence and intimidation that these groups were establishing in the late 19th century. To the extent that the, the famous uh, movement known as the Gunvung Vöng in Vietnamese history, the sort of save the king movement that was called as a maquis against French colonial administration in, the, in 1885. The early edicts of the Gunvung rebels when they were declaring a, a shadow administration to displace French colonial rule all of the early edicts name black flag commanders as provincial officials. So there's a direct personal connection between an, uh, early anti-colonialism and uh, and the black flags. I mean, not to mention the sort of more inspirational relationship between these groups and early Vietnamese nationalist revolutionaries.
1: So we get a strong sense from that answer about how you develop the discussion around the groups in the book. But the other part of the story is what we learn about these states themselves, the Chinese, Vietnamese, and subsequently French colonial states. What does your book reveal about the idea and practice of the Vietnamese, Chinese, and colonizing French states?
0: Beginning in the 1830s, there was an attempt by the leadership both at the, at the court and out in the provinces in, in, in Vietnam, to create a more routinized, I would say more rationalized form of administration throughout the kingdom to where you know, uh, taxation could be more predictable. There were efforts to send officials out into places that were uh, previously obscure to sort of get an account of who was living there and how many people were living there. Rebellions were put down with a great deal of not only force and violence, but also with some degree of administrative tinkering to try to prevent the sort of rebel bases from, from persisting beyond or after the defeat of the rebellion. There was a couple of big rebellions in the 1830s, Nong Van Bun up north. Le bon in the South. By the 1850s and 1860s, which is when these groups enter the story, uh, the Vietnamese imperial state is a state that has become very much concerned with the institutionalization of the power of the emperor. They're describing this in the archives and in court correspondence in terms of the ability of imperial virtue to uh, to spread to each corner of the realm and they're using very kind of Mencian Confucian language to describe what what I really see as a as an attempt to institutionalize and, and really rationalize the charismatic authority of the sovereign emperor this is very similar in some senses to things that had happened in China uh, in the 18th century, there's been quite a lot of scholarship on the reforms of the Yongzheng Emperor and the attempt to displace groups of people known as, as, as Tu Si in Chinese or To in Vietnamese. These were appointments for uh, officials who are not uh, brought up through the routine civil examination channels, but who were appointed for the sake of expediency. There was an attempt to dismantle this system in the 18th century in favor of more routine appointed officials who it was believed would be more reliable, who would better represent the prerogatives of the civilizing court, particularly in areas where the population tended to not be ethnically Han Chinese. So I sort of see a a very similar set of concerns on either side of the borderlands for the, the period of this book. As, as far as the French, there's a great line that Alex Woodside wrote in Vietnam and the Chinese Model, which is that by the time the so called Sino the French War ended in 1885, 1886, and when the French administration attempted to establish French colonial authority in Vietnam, their ideas were already 40 years out of date. They were relying on very militarized pacification strategies that had actually been dispensed with by the 1820s by the Vietnamese imperial authorities. And their forms of taxation were, were in many ways varieties of labor taxation or tax, in, you know, for example, that, that hadn't really existed in quite some time in Vietnam. So I see what France is what what the French colonial authorities are attempting to do, and it fits very nicely into the story of of these groups on the borderlands. They're attempting to uh, establish through the same sort of violence that these groups are using or that Imperial Vietnamese authorities use, or Chinese imperial authorities use. They're trying to establish this structure of the of the civilizing mission by crafting alliances with different groups. To, uh, to carry that out. And it's ultimately something that becomes quite frustrated, even more frustrated than the political projects of Vietnam and China before it.
1: Let's take a short break here to right. uh, hear a message from our sponsors. And when we return, we'll talk more about violence and state formation, then consider also how your book engages with some of the existing literature on borderlands and banditry, among other topics. Thanks. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Bradley Camp Davis, author of Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China-Vietnam Borderlands. Bradley, we didn't get the chance to address one of our traditional questions on the channel, which is how you got interested in this topic.
0: I guess probably the best way to answer that is that as someone who who grew up in the United States in the late 70s and early 80s, Vietnam was a time period in American history, and sort of the consciousness of it as a place wasn't quite as solid as it would become in the uh, later 80s and early 90s. I always had this curiosity about that part of Southeast Asia and also that part of Southern China, really for quite some time. My grandfather was a veteran of World War II who was in the Pacific Theater with the Marines, and he never really talked about his experiences in combat ever. But when I was in second grade, I had to do a project where we were told to um, interview a member of our family who was in World War II, and he actually agreed to let me interview him. At the end of the interview, he said, you know, no one understands Vietnam. No one now understands it. No one then understood it. And uh, the whole thing is just is just a, a tragic error. He said some other things too that actually got me into a fair bit of trouble. He describes dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a uh, a violent war crime that the Strategic Air Command should have been prosecuted for. So I mean, echoing what other people in the U.S. military said at the time, that got me sent to the principal's office when I <laughs> gave my report. But that proved two things to me, and I guess it proved that Vietnam was interesting and that Southeast Asia was interesting. And as I would get into college and later graduate school i would pick up the languages i would need to study it but it also proved to me that the past is upsetting and that history is powerful because things that are powerful upset people
1: violence is certainly upsetting and the kinds of uh, extraordinary or or rather spectacular (laughs) violence that you describe in the book is upsetting are you retelling a familiar story about how violence is the gel, as it were, that pulls the bandit and that state together? Or is there something more going on in the China-Vietnam borderlands that deserves special attention? And if so, what? To an extent, it is,
0: it is a familiar story. And to an extent, there is something more going on. I was inspired by the work of uh, Anton Bloch, who wrote quite a lot about uh, Sicily and the uh, interdependency between organized criminal groups and the state. Uh, work by uh, Sosono Maturno, who wrote about the uh, Petangi in, in, in Java during the Mataram Sultanate. These are people who were, you know, not not quite criminals, not quite enforcers. I mean, I'm kind of reminded of Jan Van Leur's, I think it was Jan Van Leur's quote, that criminal and bandit and pirate, these are political categories, uh, and and if you're doing historical analysis, you can't really rely on these, because historians shouldn't be judging, I I suppose. They shouldn't be making political judgment. And, you know, the famous Charles Tilley article about organized crime in the state, right? I mean, there's, to a great extent, some empirical similarity or some structural similarity between bandits and officials. There's a phrase in Vietnamese that translates, whoever wins gets to be the king and whoever loses gets to be the bandit. You know, it's a a bit of a very, very old sort of uh, post-structural cynicism about uh, political power. What's new? Is there something going on in the China-Vietnam borderlands that deserves special attention? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that these are things that can really open up discussions about Vietnam before French colonialism, and, and China before uh, the end of the 19th century, the something more here is the direct, in many cases, personal connection between the imperial bandits, bandit groups who were working with the Vietnamese imperial state, and the anti-colonial revolutionaries who would come along later, many of them inspiring people like Sun Yat-sen or Phan Poi Cho in the Vietnam case, people who are universally within China and Vietnam seen as as early harbingers of nationalism in the early 20th century, and that there is a direct link between these groups and that particular political movement.
1: You did mention in the first half of the discussion about the slippery conceptual slope when working with the category of bandit. You also draw on Hobsbawm's seminal work on this topic, but your imperial bandits are at a far removed from his social ones. So how has the literature on banditry moved on since his day? And how do you see your own work on banditry responding to his work and others who are working on that topic presently? Well, Ho-
0: Hobsbawm was such an interesting author to read, not only when I was first beginning this project, but also when I was writing the book, because in a way, I kind of reread Hobsbawm a little bit. The the first title of his book, which most of us know as as Social Bandits, the, the original first title of the book was Primitive Rebels. And I think that's actually pretty instructive because That's essentially what he's talking about. These are rebels who aren't really revolutionaries, which in a way is kind of, you know, it harmonizes very neatly with the ideas in the historiography in Vietnam and also in China about many of these groups, about how I think there's, you know, during... uh, what some people might call a Marxist-Leninist or even a Maoist interpretation of the Taiping as a rebellious movement in southern China that missed out on becoming revolutionary because you know they didn't have the uh, material historical conditions of revolution, and they also lacked the leadership of the party or they lacked the leadership of a, of a revolutionary idea. Uh, and I think Hobsbawm is kind of writing about these social bandit groups as aspirant rebels who— don't quite get it together, or, or they're the uh, the sort of surplus population from the countryside who don't really fit in with economic changes. Uh, and there is a lot of economic change going on during the period of the book. Opium is being traded in a much wider way. The production of mild Southern Chinese opium has been commercialized by the 1850s, partially to compete against British Indian opium. And there's also the tea trade and the salt trade. So there are economic changes happening, and there are demographic changes happening. You know, my my urge to criticize Hobsbawm and to engage in the work of people like Anton Bloch and Karen Barkey, who writes about the Ottoman Empire. And to revise Hobsbawm was met with a sort of a, a new appreciation for what Hobsbawm was talking about. That being said, Hobsbawm has a great deal of skepticism about oral traditions. He actually talks about how oral traditions or oral histories are um, corruptions. They infect historical research. They're unreliable, and historians have to be careful n- not to erect this sort of story of a rubber romantic account of, uh, of these groups. And I took the very, I took an, sort of an opposite approach and sort of dove right into it and wanted to see what, what was there in the oral traditions that could inform my reading of textual evidence, but also what about doing oral tradition fieldwork would enable me to write a very different kind of historical study, one that at least in a small way, tries to take the the present into account, or at least tries to take the late 20th century into account.
1: Guha, of course, also adopts that line, doesn't he, in, in right, elementary right. aspects of peasant insurgency right. in colonial India. His method is to use the distorting mirror in the reading of colonial archives rather than relying on oral traditions. So right. you're, you're deliberate about your use of those oral traditions, and yet, you don't really seem to argue the case strongly in the way that perhaps I might have expected.
0: I mentioned earlier that there's, there's quite a lot of textual sources for this particular period. When I was plugging into the conceptual language of oral tradition and its role in historical research, there's an obvious nod in the book to the work of Jan van Cena, the very famous Belgian Africanist. He was relying Much more extensively on oral traditions to build a a historical background for the period and the the place that he was working on. I suppose I really did want to let it speak for itself. There are some fairly suggestive passages in the book that say some things about the relationship of oral traditions to this kind of historical research. I mean, but at at the end of the day, it is a book written by a historian. And it is a book that is a a book of Southeast Asian history. And I think that on the way to it getting published, there are certain kind of decisions about things to leave in and things to omit. You know, it's maybe more suggestive than I would have had it in earlier versions of the book. But it's it's certainly a part of it.
1: Now, in introducing the program... I mentioned the upsurge in recent years of borderland and frontier studies. Your book speaks to that community of scholarship, not only through its contents manifestly, but also by including the borderlands uh, keyword in its subtitle. Uh, a two part question. First is why the renewed interest in borderlands? And second, what do you see is your specific contribution through this historical inquiry?
0: well i think that the interest in borderlands is you know it's, it's probably tied to some medium long-term intellectual trends but also some fairly contemporary political developments people will probably continue to be interested in this because it's, it's a way of uh, thinking beyond or at least thinking outside of these rather tight strictures of nation-state or of sort of police borderline Attempts to control or contain human activity that seem to be constantly Frustrated if not failing and so looking at what Carl Healy uh, the First Nations historian who's at Wilfrid Laurier in uh, in Canada what he's described as borderland processes really so it's not just the borderlands themselves But the things that people do there and the, the kind of circulations and flows that borderland spaces make possible it's to me very different from a frontier, and and this is something that at a workshop I did a few years ago, there was a terrific conversation we had about vocabulary choices here, and uh, and a frontier for me versus a borderland or borderlands. I mean, these are these are very two different sort of heuristic concepts and a frontier is it's a limit that's there to be overcome or to be surpassed i mean it's the, the, you have the final frontier it's at the you have a frontier which can be vertical which can be horizontal a borderlands is there's a sense of kind of a meeting of different things whether it's different political orders different linguistic orientations, different forms of productive relationship to the land. And there's a sense of a, uh, a more open-ended sense of life in borderland spaces. Borderlands, I, I take in this sort of literal empirical sense of places where you have these meetings of different lines or meetings of different different groups, but there's also a metaphorical sense. Even after a borderline is drawn, um, even after you have this hard line in the earth that's supposed to tell you what's on one side and what's on the other, it doesn't mean that the borderlands stop. And that, uh, at least in in the case of China and Vietnam, the attempt by the French to draw a hard borderline did not end the, the logic of the borderlands or borderlands processes to call back to Carl Healy again. Um, these are things that endured the borderline. And in many cases, the borderline became just another element in the borderlands way of doing things or the borderlands cultural practice of power.
1: Well, after the line was drawn, as you mentioned already, the Black flags became heroes by some accounts and terrorizers of peasant communities by others. How have they emerged in the nationalist historical and historiographic projects of the 20th century?
0: And uh, specifically speaking to China and Vietnam, there is in the official historiography and also in public historiography, you know, things like museums and and monuments and memorials, the black flags are, well, they're very much lionized in, in China, although it's, it's interesting. I mean, for instance, if you go to the military museum in Beijing, there is a there was a large display of the black flags contribution to the war against France, because they fought alongside the Chinese and Vietnamese army against France and from 1883 to 1885 the black flags are depicted as heroes they're they're described as having as having held off the, the tide of capitalist imperialism and sort of european colonial domination of asia so they fit very nicely into the narrative of chinese history that is endorsed in the prc liu yongfu's retirement home in Qinzhou in the at the southern end of china very close to vietnam was now a museum and i describe in the final chapter of the book some of the things at the museum and, and also some of the things at the the sites where the black flags launched their uprising which is about a, a day by bus i think from the museum so heroically depicted in china heroically depicted also in in chinese cinema huang feihong which has the english title once upon a time in china opens with a scene of the black flags on a boat smashing a placard that says property of, of the french government or something the the character depicting lo yong fu saying that he's going to vietnam to help our brothers so this is the the, the sort of image of the black flags that you can expect to find uh, not only in the PRC, but also in Taiwan and, and in Hong Kong to a great extent. In Vietnam, this, you know, again, is talked about also in the book. Who the Black Flags were and what they did becomes a issue of some very, very active scholarly and political debate in the 1960s. The first Vietnamese language monograph about the Black Flags is published in the mid-1950s, shortly after the uh, Battle of Dien Bien Phu, where France was defeated. And uh, the Black Flags are depicted as revolutionary allies of Vietnam, and they were there to help defend against the French invasion. Any mention of atrocities in this book is sort of chalked up to things that can't really be proven or things that can't really be demonstrated or possibly even lies that were invented by the French colonial regime. People began taking local stories more seriously in the 1960s and it's a group of historians based out of Hanoi who began traveling to villages and interviewing old people who still remember things their parents told them or remember where things happened. And these are this this was sort of the inspiration for me to do this very thing when I was researching the book. So so, it's a bit of a mixed legacy for the black flags in Vietnam. And in many cases, and without naming names, it it gets very, very personal. There are people who have had their entire academic careers absolutely scuttered just because they dared write something critical of another historian who wrote something praising the black flags. And there are people in certain very influential positions in the Vietnamese academy who considered themselves responsible for having protected the legacy of the black flags against uh, revisionists. That being said, the younger generation, you know, by when historians say younger, they mean people in their 50s. Uh, The younger generation in Vietnam is not nearly as beholden to the notion that the Black Flags are revolutionary allies.
1: Are you yeah. continuing with your work on these Imperial Bandits, or have you moved in some other direction since the book was written, if not published?
0: There's kind of an ongoing thing I've been doing, which is sort of related to some of the material from the book. In 2007, just before I finished my PhD, I got involved with uh, what well, was something that we called the, the Yao Script Project. This is an attempt to create a new context for literacy in the traditional Yao language, which is a written language that uses things that look like Chinese characters. And we got some money from the Ford Foundation to finance village-level schools and things like this in northern Vietnam. And while doing this to uh, work with elder members of the literate Yao community to create a digital database of texts that were written in Yao characters, in the Yao script. So this is something that's been going on for uh, just over a decade now. Uh, It's led to sort of similar kinds of projects in other parts of Vietnam, uh, which has been really, really satisfying to watch. Hopefully, before too long, I'll be writing something substantive about some of the materials that we've been working with. I'm also part of a research group based in Hanoi, which is coming up with some projects to do more extensive work on the Vietnamese imperial archives, which have all been made completely available in Hanoi. They're all in classical Chinese, and they relate to the administrative decisions of the last Vietnamese imperial dynasty. These materials themselves are probably worth a book, just the, the history of what happened to them during the the conflicts in Vietnam and how they became open to the public. But I'll be mostly writing a couple of articles on different subjects related to the 1830s and 1840s. Yeah, other than that, I have a uh, project on Vietnamese imperial ethnography in the Northwest, specifically the work of an official named Pham Thanh Zwet, who wrote uh, quite extensively about speakers of Thai Dam in the Black River region. So I'm doing a book project on the production of ethnographic knowledge during imperial Vietnam. That's sort of the next big thing.
1: Well, it's quite a suite of activities. And I, I wish guess,
0: geez, you... well. that sounds like a lot more now <laughs> that I've said it out
1: loud. Well, I wish you all the best for them uh, anyway. And well, thank you very much, Bradley Cap Davis, for taking the time to talk with us today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks to you also, dear listeners, for joining us, as well as to the channel's three sponsors, the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, Sydney Southeast Asia Center, and Griffith Asia Institute. You can get to their websites via the Icons that you'll find in the right-hand bar of our Southeast Asian Studies page on the New Books Network. That's www.newbooksnetwork.com. And while you're on the site, why not check out some of our other episodes on Vietnam, like Pam McElwee talking about environmental rule and forestry, or Ken McLean on bureaucratic power and legibility.